What you are about to listen to aired on July 12, 2023, during the Surreal Politics member chat for that Wednesday. And I would invite you to become a member of Surreal Politics at surrealpolitics.com slash join. It's $10 a month, but if you use code AGENDA33, you get it your first three months for 33% off, which is a great deal. It's just math. You don't want to argue with math, do you? The title of this is On Beauty, and I think you're going to like it. You know, before I found out about Matt Hale's mother, you know, I had sent out this email. I told you about this, that like I had occasion to contemplate beauty for some time. And this was like several hours that this had gone on. And what happened was I I, I ended up like been watching these videos by this female violinist by the name of Lindsay Sterling. And it turned out I, I went and I checked my MP3 collection. It turns out I actually have her discography up to like 2017, but I, I, I don't. I don't listen to a lot of music because I'm usually trying to do other things. And like music consumes me. Like I, I can't, I can't listen to music and read the news. Like I can't do stuff like that. I, you know, um, so for, as far as I was concerned, like I was seeing and hearing and, you know, this beautiful and amazingly talented woman for the first time that night. And so after watching these videos, like I started to compose a lot of what I'm about to say. And I was, I was actually very proud of what I had put together because I had sort of poured my heart into it. And I'm not complaining to tell you that when I do that, like that can actually take a great deal out of me. Um, I can get into like something of an emotional feedback loop where I'm I'm having this intense like emotional experience. And then to translate that into text while it is underway causes me to think about it more deeply. And then that will cause me to realize things about the experience that I didn't realize. And then, you know, creates this whole new sort of feedback loop. And then I'm thinking about thinking about it and I'm thinking about writing about it and I'm thinking about the impact this is going to have on other people. And, you know, there are, shall we say, like power feelings of like power and I don't know, guilt involved in that. And they all have their own complicated implications. Suffice so as it say, though, like I spend most of my life um, something of an aspiring psychopath, you know. Um, I tend to think that getting like emotionally wrapped up in things is a hindrance to clear thinking and purposeful action. Um, it may be useful to the extent that it inspires creativity and it can be a powerful motivator. But for me, like those emotional feedback loops, they can be they can be a lot like doing drugs, actually. Even when, you know, perhaps especially when those uh, those things that I'm, you know, cons- that I'm getting consumed in, they're not happy emotions, actually. And I get totally carried away and I find myself tempted to like dwell in things and I have to try to manage this and be like, okay, it's time to stop. Right. And that is what I had done about 4,000 words into this thing that I was typing up Wednesday, last Wednesday morning. Um, 
that is uh, comprises the bulk of what I'm about to get into. I had stopped doing this at basically like 11 a.m. on last Wednesday. And then as I was about to uh, call it a night and go to sleep, I, I get this email and I decide to check my email before I go to bed. And I find out that Matt Hale's mother died. And um, when that happened, like, you know, in the state that I was in after doing this thing, like this was like, oh, my God, you got to be kidding me. Um, because that that was all the more significant because actually, like, I thought about Matt Hale in the course of what it was that I was producing. Um, we'll discuss in greater detail. Like I realized that I was so intensely appreciating the beauty of what I was seeing with this violinist in some part, because like I hadn't had a great deal of beauty to appreciate for the last, you know, three plus years while I was in prison. And, and even after I got out, I've been very busy, you know, um, I feel really, really terrible for Matt Hale because, you know, even beyond the fact that he has to do basically a year for every month that I had to do, um, I think that his general disposition, like, makes prison an even more awful experience for him, you know, in kind of like a lot of ways. And, like, he, you know, the, Matt Hale always disagreed with me when I would, there, I could never summarize the World Church of the Creator to his satisfaction. And, like, he doesn't like it when I say nature worship or whatever. But, you know, were it not for his, you know, dissatisfaction with that, like, I might do this. And, for example, like, he had, um, like, he just appreciates nature in a very profound way. Like, I recall he had this, like, somebody sent him a book with, like, high-resolution pictures of frogs. And he was just, like, so excited to show me this thing, you know? And... I remember like seeing the joy on his face when he's, you know, watching this. He'd be like, uh, see like a ladybug in the yard. And this would like make his day. Look, it's a ladybug, you know. And so I'm actually going to skip a whole bunch of this. I don't need to go into all this. And we've, we've been going for a little while. Yeah. Um, and this was very relevant to me as like I started to, um, compose what I was putting together last Wednesday because like I, I realized that my contemplation of beauty in this in this realm really hadn't started as a consequence of the of the violinist. I had actually when I was putting together the the prior Monday's show, um the the episode 16 titled Sustained Action, and I was sort of like I I was sort of pitching New Hampshire as like a place to have a political migration, right? And in the course of this I had looked for, you know, some cover art for the show, which I had hoped would sort of, you know, capture the beauty of New Hampshire. And this is no small task, as you may know if you've ever been here, especially in the fall. Uh, I grew up in New York, as you know, and there's lots there's lots of beautiful things in New York. I mean, it, it, if you can stop for two seconds to take a look at them, you know, some of them can actually be very impressive. But if you, you know, like in New York, it's not the custom to stop for two seconds. So, you know, they often go unseen or, you know, maybe you do stop for two seconds and you find that it, you know, it stinks of urine or has been turned into a homeless encampment and everything's being destroyed. So you end up missing a lot of the beauty that New York does have to offer. So when I come to New Hampshire for the first time, I had drove here with a friend of mine to come to this thing, the, the Porcupine Freedom Festival with the Free State Project. And we had driven, uh, we had driven all the way nonstop clear from Long Island to Lancaster. 
And that was the longest car trip, I think, that I certainly the longest car trip I had taken as an adult. Uh, and I was just like, I was just stunned at what I saw on the way up here. You, you, like, you don't, you don't have the choice of missing the beauty on a long car ride like that. There were mountains and lakes and animals and fields. And like, you could see some of these things in New York, especially in the Northern portions. But I was like, I was just so stunned at like the, these vast expanses and beautiful scenes that I was seeing. And, uh, you know, there's, there's like entire lengths of the, of the interstate highway system up here that, that are just like carved through mountains, right? And at the time, I thought I thought that this was pretty cool because, like, I didn't see anything. I didn't recall seeing anything like this anyway. You know, not on such a scale in New York. You know, there's shorter areas, but you know, you look at this like entire length of highway just carved through a mountain. I'm like, you know, the function of it, I thought, was like a a very it was a powerful symbol of it was a symbol of power. Human beings came here and was like, "This mountain's in my way. I will destroy it." And you know, and they destroyed it. And, you know, I got to drive a car through it. I thought that was pretty cool. Destroy is probably the wrong word, actually. Like, the stone walls around us, they had these, you know, they had these grooves in them, you know, that indicated that it had not been simply blown up. This was a precision work. And, you know, precision is very, it's very impressive when you're, when you're dealing with powerful forces like that, you know. Any idiot can light a fuse or swing a hammer, though some better than others, to be sure. But, like, it's one sort of power to destroy a thing, and it is, you know, quite another sort of power to make of it what one will, especially when you're talking about a, a mountain. So anyway, we get to the campground, and, you know, there were some very nice views, but the campground itself was very unimpressive. And so were many of the people there, especially in the subsequent years that I went back. You know, there, there, there was quite a lot of high-pitched whining, as a matter of fact. And the first time I went there, you know, I was I was drunk, you know, most of the time. So I didn't then mind that, you know, so few people were sober. But in hindsight, especially ever after I went there, you know, sober um, in a subsequent year, I kind of like it occurred to me that that was a large part of the problem. And I've recently, as some of you know, like I've been sorting through um, uh, all my old data. I've had like photos and videos and audio like scattered over phones and SD cards and thumb drives and hard drives all over the place. And I've consolidated all of this and I'm sort of like sorting through it and just deleting duplicates and whatnot. And, you know, as I, as I go through it, I'm looking at some of these old photos. I'm like, wow, you know, I recently saw some very unimpressive photos of your humble correspondent. And like, I know, um, I know that, uh, a lot of that was like from my my drinking back then, which you know is pretty ugly, frankly. And like I was I was fat, right? Like visibly, and not just like that. It, it wasn't just that like my drinking made my attitude poor, but like I was ugly. I was not just like a protruding belly or like a, a, a an extra notch in my belt, but like my face was fat. And every time I see that face, I'm like, I want to punch it. But anyway, like I go, I go back to, uh, I go back to New York when the thing is over and I, and I start thinking like, maybe, maybe I should move to New Hampshire and, you know, abolish their government or whatever. Like just like, I'll show up and I'll be like, Hey mountain, get out of my way. And, and you know, kind of like expect that to work. Um, is somebody expressing that there's a problem with Odyssey? What's the telegram link? You can DM it to me instead of on here. Everything. Okay. Okay, this is not that. Okay. Uh, when I get to New York, uh, at some point when I'm living in New York, I go to I try to buy a gun, 
and uh, and I get turned down for this. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, I, you know, back then I wasn't a convicted felon. I thought that's the only thing that would like prevent you from buying a gun. But like, it turned out I had like a misdemeanor weapons charge when I was a kid. Like, I called it a stun gun when I was like 19. And they said, because my misdemeanor weapons charge was what New York considered a serious crime, unlike punching an old lady in the face, which is actually not like that's just a misdemeanor. It's not a serious crime to just go punch an old lady in the face. That's a simple assault. And, you know, violence is OK. So but I couldn't buy a gun in New York. I was like, what the heck happened here? And so I was like, wow, you know, disarm, disarming me this is what Hitler did to the Jews. And I was like, I've got to I've got to flee New York. And so I moved here to New Hampshire in 2012 on account of that. And, you know, the government, you know, hasn't been abolished yet. Uh, I've actually become sort of fond of the institution, as it turns out. And so when I got here, I, I lived I lived in the suburbs of Keene, New Hampshire. And Keene is a nice place. It's like it's a quaint little town with quaint, nice things to look at. But when we would go to the uh, to the state house, the legislature in Concord to go testify before legislative committees, that involves an hour, like a, a drive about an hour or so to and from Concord, the, the, the state capital. And I don't usually like to be I don't usually like to be the passenger in a car. I, I, I'm a control freak. I need to be in control of everything. Um, and. I took these rides with the other activists or whatever. And a lot of time I'd be the passenger in the car. And that was one time I didn't mind it. Like to go drive to Concord, I was like, oh, I'll just stare out the window at like all the beauty of this place. And it was stunning to me. Like I, I just, I, I fell in love with this place doing that. And so when I'm trying to make this pitch to like get people to consider, you know, moving here and taking over rather than abolishing the government, I'm, I, I start looking through you know, like stock photos through some free services and some ser- and a service that I pay for, trying to find a picture that sort of captures this beauty that I fell in love with in 2012. And while a picture can be worth a thousand words, it is not worth an inch of New Hampshire. So like it was not easy to find a suitable photograph to capture what I aimed to capture. But even even at that, like I was still like, I realized that I was really stunned by what I was looking at. And I was really like I was kind of bent out of shape about it. I, I was I was like taken by the experience of looking at these photos of New Hampshire. And I was like, what the hell is wrong with me? Like, why? Why? Like, why would a picture of New Hampshire get my heart rate up? You know. And then it occurred to me while I was doing this that like I have not like my life has had a staggering lack of beauty in it for the last few years. And and this is what was like incre- this was increasing the emotional load of me, like looking at pictures of nature you know, because I haven't, you know, even after I got out, like I haven't done anything like new, the place in New Hampshire where I live is garbage. OK, like like there's junkies in the park. And like I and I, I hate I, I'm really, really mad when I leave this house. I see this stuff going on. I'm like when I lived in Keene and would go and, you know, drive through the woods, I was thinking about moving to Berlin. Like I used to seeing like either quaint little white suburbs or like beautiful vast expanses of nature and mountains and stuff and now i'm like in a city with blacks and drug addicts and i'm like oh my god you've destroyed my my place you know but anyway so you know that stuff still exists in new hampshire in any case it's just it's not been my experience and i haven't gotten to see it i went straight from you know the drabness of prison to you know to this filth of the city the county jail where I was held, we didn't go outside at all, okay? 
And that was, I didn't think that that was like constitutional until they did that to me in Virginia. To make matters worse, there's a problem that like, before I arrived at this jail, like the windows at the Stratford County Correctional Facility in Dover, New Hampshire, they're very close to the street, okay? And so there was a problem that some of the degenerate prisoners in this place would like expose themselves to pedestrians as they walk by. And so what the jail did to solve this problem was they had somebody come in and spray this like acid crap on the outside of the windows, which made the windows all foggy. So that. So that like you couldn't see, you know, clearly what was out there. And sometimes I would like I would I would stand on a chair and I'd like peek out the top like seam of the window. Sometimes there was like a speck of space where you didn't have any of this crap like ruining your view. And I would almost like whimper to look at the trees when I when I went through this. I went through this for like 14 months. I was in that place. And people tell you when you're in jail that when you get to the federal prison, like your your life's actually going to improve a great deal. It's actually people are afraid to go to prison. They, they're like, you know. But actually, prison, for the most part, will actually tend to improve your quality of life over jail. And so they tell you when you get to the federal prison, there's like a yard. You know, some yards are better than others, but you get to go outside basically whenever you want, other than, you know, some dedicated, you know, lockdown times like at night. But I didn't go to a regular part of the prison system. As you know, I went to this thing called the Communications Management Unit in Marion, Illinois, where like, um, it, 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 it's a parking lot. It is no, it's not like I don't go out on grass. I go in, I go from the concrete of the, of the inside of the prison to the concrete outside the prison. Um, and so like, it's, there's like, uh, whatever, I get into more details of this. And also like, so like, there's this thing, it's basically maybe the size of a professional basketball, not, not a stadium, but like the court. And there's three, you know, chain link cages within that small space that are about the size of like, you know, a, a half court to play basketball on or whatever. And um, and around it is, you know, concrete walls, three stories high. So like the sun's going away, like be- for us before it's going away for everybody else. And so when I got released to the halfway house after three years of this, um, you know, they told me I couldn't do my job there. And. You know, most people, when they're at the halfway house, they get a job there and they sort of get themselves established before they're released. But I wasn't even allowed to like I couldn't talk to like a mainstream news outlet. They saw I said I wasn't allowed to talk to media. So, you know, I didn't do any of these things, but I was like, I'm not going to stay here. Get out of here. You know, get me out of here as soon as I'm not, you know, in the compulsory custody of the Bureau of Prisons. I'm walking out that front door. I don't care if I have to go to a homeless shelter. So I didn't have to do that thanks to, you know, thanks to you guys. And so with the charity of supporters, I got into this, like, you know, this, this place that I rent now and, you know, I got to work right away and I'm very happy with how things, you know, have turned out for the most part, but I'm not, and I'm not complaining about it to describe the, the experience, but like, as I said, like this place is, I have not gotten to go out and explore the beauty of New Hampshire is the, is the short version of the story I just told you. So it really hadn't struck me until I began looking for these photos that like, you know, even though they were insufficient to convey what I wanted to convey, like they they really like did this job on my eyes. Like I was like, whoa, you know, and it got me to thinking a lot about like perceptions, right? Like like what the deprivation I had endured did to totally change my perception of these these images that were like strikingly beautiful to me. And I could have, I could have almost ignored them before. 
I didn't realize until very recently, like how important that appreciation for beauty was. And like, I was really disturbed by this realization. And so as I was like looking at these photos, I thought of Matt Hale too. I'm like, Matt Hale loves like nature, like Matt Hale, a ladybug will make Matt Hale's day. And like, he hasn't seen anything like this in a very, very long time. And he's not going to see it for, you know, another 15 years or whatever. And if you think like the people at the Porcupine Freedom Festival were like not very beautiful, do some time in prison. This is not just like a, a thing of the eyes, but it's like all that can be observed about a person, not just the prisoners, but the staff. You know, one of the things that troubled me the most as I began to think of this was like the, the women who worked at the prison. Okay. So this is very relevant as I'm thinking about this violinist that the women that I saw at this prison, like they had been masculinized, really. Like they wanted to, you know, earn the respect of their peers or whatever. So they had to, you know, be men, basically. And um, some of them like even chewed tobacco, okay? And look, I love nicotine. And if any of you guys are chewers, whatever, with all due respect, like I think that chewing tobacco is one of the most disgusting things that a man can do short of like playing with fecal matter. And like the idea that like a woman is doing this is like, oh my God, like what the, what the, uh, what? It's shocking to me to see that. And so, you know, a, a man in my position, like he has to learn to, uh, uh, he has to think a lot about voices, let's say. And, you know, it's not it's not just my voice that, you know, I love the sound of. Like, I don't just take calls on the air and do these member chats because I think it will just please the audience or, you know, the more you talk, the less I have to, as I'm fond of saying. Um, I don't just like to talk. I like to listen, right? And when I listen, I I pay attention to words. Yeah, obviously, but I pay more attention to voices, actually which is why my audio troubles haunt me such as they do. Like, And, you know, in communicating people with men, tone conveys a lot. I mean, it's, it's obviously relevant, but I, like I tend to rely on the words that men say, and we can communicate near as easily via email as we can face-to-face. This is not the case with women at all, obviously. You know this. You know, I need I need to see the contours of her face. I, I need to hear the tone of her voice. I feel like I would do a woman a very terrible disservice just to like take her words at face value and fail to interpret the other wealth of information that God gave her the gift of conveying with her eyes and her tone, obviously, right? Every man over 30 knows that he has lost the argument if he has to say to his lover, but honey, you said X, Y, and Z. Ha <laughs> yes. Well, yes, young man. That's the words that she used, perhaps. But when you get to be my age, you'll understand, you know, that she told you everything you needed to know and you were not listening as a man must learn to listen to a woman, sir. You are the one who needs to improve your communication skills, not her. And so I really like the sound of a woman's voice is kind of what I'm getting at here. And it was, you know, it has this amazing sort of duality in which it's both like mysterious and it's packed with information, right? It's like, it's like a puzzle. I only had two phone calls a week while I was in Marion. And my love life, you may know, to some extent, that, like, I suffered this, like, series of, you know, romantic tragedies prior to my arrest. So, like, on, you know, 
even when I had my phone calls, I didn't get nearly enough of like what I love about a woman's voice, you know. But I did listen to the radio for more of the news sometimes. And while we could not stream music like you can here, I did acquire an MP3 player and purchase a number of songs by very talented female vocalists like Adele and Ellie Goulding and Kiara, Camilla Cabello and Olivia O'Brien, Julia Michaels, Evanescence and others. And like I would I would um, I would not listen to these artists while I did other things like. I mentioned earlier, like music consumes me. I, I can't do other things on with like music in the background. Say perhaps like drive. I can drive with music in the background, but that's about it. So I like I would listen to these things all alone in my cell, concentrating like entirely on their voices. And, you know, this is like the closest I came to lovemaking for a number of years. I'm not complaining about that. I know it sounds like it, you know, like, you know, firstly, I'm I'm actually describing like an, a very intensely enjoyable experience. You, if and I couldn't have had it any other way, like if you'd asked me like, hey, would you like to go to prison and appreciate women's voices very intensely? I'd have been like, no, as a matter of fact, that sounds like a very bad idea. I can appreciate women now. F off. I will avoid prison. But like, you know, while I was there, I was I was like rocked by this experience, you know deprived of it and listening to it in this context. It was a completely different experience. And, uh, yeah, yeah, come on. Stupid. I might also, uh, no, I'm going to skip that part too. I'm sorry. I'll get to this. Like I had not viewed pornography almost the entire time that I was locked up. They don't allow it in the federal prison system or in any of the jails that I was in uh, during this stint. The first time I was locked up in New York, like there were porno magazines all over the place. And like you could get porno magazines sent to you like they were like abundant, you know. But getting rid of that seems to be like one of the changes that has been very popular in like the nationwide correctional system, along with, you know, getting rid of smoking or whatever. But the occasional racy image, like, it'll find its way in there and it'll get around, you know, and like, some of you have heard me talk before that, you know, we had these Android tablets at the Stratford County Jail and um, we we were, some of us were able to figure out how to like subvert the limitations on the things. They, they were actually connected to the internet. They just had very, you know, strict limitations of what you could do. And we found ways of getting around them in limited ways. And so some guys managed to like connect to like out, outside libraries and get books that were not approved by the jail. Now the, the library system that we were using had its own, you know, controls. You couldn't get a copy of mine comp, for example, but th- we managed to find like books in outside libraries that had uh, like pictures of women's breasts and stuff like that. And this was like the most, you know, exciting sexual imagery that that we had access to and then of course once i went to prison then i didn't have that because we don't have internet access on the tablets yet. and so um in a world flooded with hardcore porn like like these things would not have even raised an eyebrow right like i had used to have like porn hub like boom like some people made fun of me i sent out screenshots of my web browser a couple times people saw that like i had a porn hub in my bookmark bar and stuff. So I used to look, look at a lot of pornography. And so I didn't, re- I, I did not 
you know, even even at the county jail, I didn't fully appreciate what was going on. And and I didn't really miss it by the time I got to the prison. And so anyway. I'm not uh I have uh I've not been all work and no play since I got home. I'm skipping around through this thing because some of the stuff I wrote was just too long and I'm and I'm trying to get through this. And I apologize if that actually makes it worse because I'm losing track of what I'm saying here. I'm not all work and no play since I've been home. So I'm not complaining about that. I actually have been, um, I will uh, disclose, I have been blessed to know a woman's touch since I've been out. And I will say no more of it than that, other than that she is not in my life because, you know, that would be impolite. But I will breach decorum uh, just one more time to say that I have viewed pornography more than once since I have been home. And... Like, that has never bothered me so much in the past, but it bothers me a great deal today, or it did in recent days. And, you know, that caused, that impacted my reflections on beauty that I began last week, you know, and my ability to appreciate it. Um, <laughs> when I got home and I got in front of a computer, it didn't take me all that long to, you know, pull a Pornhub. And when I went to go look at it again, this was all like, it was like I was a kid again. You know, like I didn't, like from the, I, I found my first dirty magazine when I was a preteen in, in the eighties. Okay. So like, and I, I, I have not gone three years without pornography since that day. And so like to be without it for a long time was like, I had no idea how that was going to change my perceptions. I, I didn't think that it would that much. But when I got home and I looked at it, I was like, whoa, you know, I wasn't like a like it just like made it was like in, it was a more intense experience. I, I can't I'm not even saying that I was like offended by it, but I was like I was like the intensity of it was like off putting to me. And. Uh, to the extent that I have um, to the extent that I've had any ethical concerns about pornography in the past. It has tended to be because, like, I view its production, I, be, I view the production of pornography as exploitative of women, right? And, like, I've, and I mean this, I've literally, like, befriended a couple of prostitutes over the course of my life. This is not a confession to being their clients. I've, I've done that more straightforwardly elsewhere. Um, and I've also known a couple of girls who, you know, were fundamentally prostitutes, but they called themselves you know, porn stars because they were, you know, somehow filming your prostitution makes it legal is the way the scheme works, right? Um, and like they, some of them, they would talk about how exciting their lives were and how easy the money was. And they thought that this was great. And I could see in their voices and hear in their eyes, and that's not an error, it's art, um, that they were very sad, no matter what they were saying to me, and that this arrangement was really like not in their long-term best interest or even their short-term best interest. The silly libertarian idea that consent makes right is easily disproven by this observation alone. These women, these girls, I should say, were getting ripped off, you know, like selling their youth and beauty and waning fertility at a what seemed to them to be like a high, you know, hourly rate because they were comparing it to what they could earn as a grocery store clerk. And they had no idea what they were selling and, you know, the terribly high cost of it I could hear in their voices. And so, like, months ago, I wrote, like, 30,000 words. It's still sitting in my drafts folder for what was supposed to be Radical Agenda Stage 6, Episode 8. 
And this was the story of Kathy Reisenwitz, who that name may ring a bell to some of you. She's like this left-wing feminist activist. Excuse me a second. This left-wing feminist activist who was like thrust upon the libertarian scene by what was obviously some well-heeled benefactor. And like, it seems he pulled the plug because, you know, she became a literal sex for cash prostitute and OnlyFans cam girl with a Substack blog that like talked about all this, all the great reasons that, you know, prostitution should be legalized and other young girls should become hookers. Um, but she purported to know, you know, all of this from hard won experience. She's like, yeah, my life as a prostitute is wonderful. And, you know, here's how you should do it, young lady. And so I spent weeks. I, I actually signed up. I paid for access to the blog, $7. And uh, I actually let the thing renew. I ended up paying her 14 bucks, which is kind of a funny number. I spent weeks listening to and reading her screeds, like which which have been recorded over the course of several years. She's been doing this for a very long time, okay? And you get to watch this like slow motion, just train wreck unfold over the over like several posts a week. You get these like almost daily updates on her. And um she begins, she's excited and she's feeling very empowered and giving other women, you know. She's uh, she's giving other detailed women detailed instructions on how they can join in the fun, right? And so she talks about her efforts to feel loved during this time, and you know, as you might imagine, you know, the challenges that this presents to having sincere emotional connections with men who disapprove of her lifestyle, and um, and how men who do approve of her lifestyle actually don't treat her well at all, or stay around very long, you know. And as you go through her timeline, you get to the current day, you know, she's alone and like she's realizing that she's not a young woman anymore. And she she's got a cat and she calls the cat her roommate and she notices that she's like getting fewer swipes on Tinder. And since she's a reasonably talented writer, her sadness is conveyed in her text, even when she's trying to sound in power, because that's what a woman's voice does. And I have not had the heart to record this, much less publish it. I was too troubled by what I saw. And I and and like though I hate this woman, like I, I really don't like what she's done. Like it feels wrong to exploit her further after how she has been so badly led astray by others. And like knowing that her suffering is only going to intensify with time because she still refuses to learn the lessons of this. So like last Tuesday, when I stumble upon this woman's videos. Like I, I went to YouTube because I wanted some beauty. Like I kind of just felt the urge for this. I was actually just looking for, you know, sort of the vocalist. And I wanted to hear like the voice of a pretty girl to do something more gracious than moan. And so I went on YouTube and I posted, I was like, I was really repulsed by what I initially saw because there were songs that I heard on the radio that they sounded very nice. Like, you, you know, when you're in a concrete cell and you have nothing but the sound, like your mind creates an image, you know? And then you look at the video and you're like, oh, this is awful. I hate this. You know, and I was really upset about it. And I posted a telegram, half jokingly. So we're going to have to ban music videos in the ethno state or whatever. And, uh, and then my luck changed and I found, I found, uh, 
some vocals and visuals more to my liking. One of the singers that I had come to appreciate is a woman by the name of Lizzie Hale. And she did a very powerful song with this woman I mentioned, um, Lindsey Sterling. And this led me to search for Lindsey Sterling is how I stumbled upon this violinist. Now, Miss Sterling is, uh, she's very young and she's very beautiful and she's very talented. And she has a top-notch production team working with her. She doesn't, or at least in the videos that I watch, she doesn't sing much. When I started listening to her MP3s while I've been walking, she actually does seem to sing more. But in the videos I was watching, she doesn't sing much. But she can do amazing things with a violin that are almost like a woman's voice. And I felt like she was singing to me. In these videos, she's mostly just dancing very gracefully, often like in beautiful but very tasteful clothing and like while playing the violin and often these like natural environments or natural, you know, looking environments or pre-electricity civilizational settings. And she's always very graceful and she's never lewd. And her vi- in her violin, it conveys, I mean, I couldn't get over that I felt like the violin was her voice and she was conveying all the, you know, emotional content that a woman's voice can convey with this violin. I was really just, I was floored by this. And she appears, you know, at one with the violin and like her facial expressions, you know, they're, they're vivid, you know. And I was so totally immersed in the experience. I spent hours watching this. And it occurred to me at first, like, that I had not seen anything so beautiful in more than three years. Obviously, I was in prison. And then I come out here and I'm looking at junkies and garbage. You know? Um, And I was, uh, that would be troubling enough on its own. And then it occurred to me after that, that like, like I had actually been deprived of this for far longer than that because like, prior to my arrest in 2020, like this could have been background noise. Like, like I wouldn't, in 2019, would I have like sat for, if I would have sat in front of a computer for hours watching some broad play to violin? No. <laughs> what? <laughs> no, I wouldn't have done that. I would, I, I'd either not notice it or I'd turn it off. I'd be like, I have things to do. What are you talking about? What do I care about your dumb violin whore? I can download 2,000 songs in an hour for free while I watch a girl twice as hot as you eat some other girl out while the guy I can pretend is me smashes away on her like she's mere exercise equipment. And when I'm done, and I'll say it just like that too, done, I'll turn it off. Get back to cursing out ethnic groups on the internet because that's my idea of pursuing righteousness. Let's hurry up and get this damn war started. I'm bored with laughing at suffering. I want blood and fire and the distench of decaying humanity. Such is what, like, I require to, like, you know, feel any intensity, right? Like, like having been desensitized as I had been. And so, when I saw the leaves in the pictures, it occurred to me that, like, I had been deprived of beauty for three years, but I watched this woman dance with her on the ice with her violin. I was, like, baffled at, you know, the fact there was on the verge of tears by this. It's, it, you know, it occurred to me that, no, like... I've been deprived of this knot for three years. I'm bothered by this in the extreme. You know, Miss Sterling's been on YouTube for 16 years. Her, 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 my current favorite video of hers was published 11 years ago. And, you know, I'm giving new eyes for this. I'm not complaining about, you know, the, the experiences I'm talking about. I'm giving new eyes for it precisely because, thanks to being locked up for this period of time, like, I did not have all of these, you know, distractions. I'm not stunned by the woman's grace because I hadn't seen it in three years. I'm stunned by the woman's grace because I've been distracted by filth 
you know, at least since I discovered dirty magazines in the 1980s, when I was too young to understand my erection. And when I was able to see this and appreciate it this way, like it gave me pause about a lot of things. We have a tendency like to look around us and we see a lot of chaos and, and we see a lot of ugliness and we want to destroy that thing, you know. And I would say that it is with all propriety that we have this impulse to reckon with. But reckon with it, gentlemen, we must. Lest we too become the destroyers of beauty. We should not forget that it exists because we are bombarded with all of this ugliness. In recent months, I think part of the caution that I've, you know, sort of been back and forth toying with, let's say, is as I am perhaps more averse to participating in destruction as a general matter. I want to create things. I, I, I want to build things. I, I want to make and improve upon build beautiful things. Whether this is to be uh, uh, cut with precision through a mountain or like to arrange words ever so thusly, like any asshole can break things and hate people. You know, any criminal can end a life and far too many do. I could have, uh, I could have, I was so mad, like, I could have jumped across the courtroom um, during my trial in New Hampshire when I was being questioned by one of the prosecutors. She asked me something about my fondness for language, and I said to her, there's a quote, language is a useful tool and a beautiful art form. And she shrieked at me. And she's like, you use that useful tool and beautiful art form to say this? And her, her accusation, it made me very angry. It was like as if she had insulted my art for, for her to put it this way. But I could only answer yes, because, you know, that was, you know, however manipulatively framed, that was the truth. And so... I don't know if I am like right or wrong to say that we should try to prevent the destruction of what is here on account of my not wanting to lose what beauty and worth remain in this world. I have come to realize, however, that there is more beauty and worth in this world than I had uh, once appreciated. I suspect I am not the only one who has failed to appreciate many of these things. And I do not wish for anyone to go through what I went through to be able to see them. But we should be very cautious about our capacity and temptation for destruction. That beauty, the beauty that remains, it is very valuable. And, and the more scarce it becomes, the more valuable it is. And, and if we are, like, too busy with nonsense in our heads to see it, you know, that could be— we could commit a very terrible sin wrecking things because we were incapable of noticing that they were there. Now, it's not lost on me, like, the argument that all of this could be destroyed if we don't destroy the destroyers, right? And, like, I take seriously, you know, my role as a man that, you know, men have to participate in some ugliness for beauty to exist, right? And I also accept with the slightest bit of reluctance that, you know, given license to do that, I probably enjoy myself, you know. I know something of my capacity for destruction, my capacity to enjoy it. 
I had long, uh, I long considered this a virtue, right? Like I started to notice the world was spiraling out of control, and I came to believe that perhaps, you know, I come to my position for a time such as this. And yes, that's an intentional, if incomplete, Bible quote. Thinking that, um, thinking that I had that purpose, you know, it sort of tr- helped me to trust my intuitions, right? If I'm here for a purpose, then you know, thy will be done. No sense resisting it. Not making a literal claim here, but like I, re- I recall a quote. Um, I guess it was American Family Radio. I heard this. Um, somebody said, "When God calls on you, you know, you either you can either say Thy will be done, or God can say, All right, have it your way." Yeah. And the implications of this are obvious. God or no God, if you refuse to do what you're here to do, then like you're going to get exactly what you asked for, and you're probably going to regret it. And so back to beauty. Some of you might recall, like I showed you this image of a woman. She calls herself Elliot Page now. And um, she was once very beautiful. And, and her parents had named her Ellen. She, uh, she had been a very successful actress. And in the course of this, it may suffice to say that like, she got mixed up with the wrong people. And she had some regrettable sexual experiences. As she credits these experiences with like the decision to cut off her breasts and start taking testosterone. And she assures us that she's very happy and that, you know, this is just one example of why, like, I don't take women at their word, right? Like, you see her, you see her face, she's miserable, she's in pain, she's telling you she's happy. The sadness of Ellen's eyes and tone betray her deceit, and anyone who tells her that they don't know it is a monster, okay? They're, They're destroying this woman. And I've always found the transgender thing, as I said before, it's very troubling to me, but like I've always tended to view it as predatory and contaminating and contagious, but I tend to think of it until pretty recently mostly as feminizing men. And if men are predisposed to being feminized, well, you know, I'm like okay with them being killed. So like, what do I care if they prance around in a dress for a few months before they do themselves in? Whatever. What few women I had seen, like, start taking steroids, I didn't figure they had very much, like, beautiful value to begin with. But you recall that, like, I was really troubled by this Ellen Page story. I compared whoever talked her into this into, like, a, being a child molester, because that is the worst sort of criminal I can generally think of speaking, right? Like, and, and this seemed to be, like, the most, the worst thing a person could do short of that, say. Destroying feminine beauty? At the time, I thought, like, I, I had this... I compare. I said, "Is it worse?" I don't. I. I don't know. It was kind of like this. I was musing about this half jokingly, but I, this was the experience that I was going through. Like I, I felt like maybe that's worse, you know. But beyond even destroying it, like worse than destroying it, like making it a sick perversion, right? Like it wasn't just destruction; it was like blasphemy. Like you took this like holy object of reverence and you made a mockery of it, and then it walks around like constantly. M- you know, making a joke of it. It'd be much better to, like, kill her, just put a bullet in her head and, like, put her in some kind of a meat grinder and, you know, just destroy her so that she's not there anymore than to make a mockery of what she had been. I was, like, really deeply offended by this. And I experienced this very intensely. And that was part of the contemplations I was going through last week, that, like, as I was contemplating all this, that, like, That's what troubled me so much about it. I was deprived of both, like, 
the feminine beauty in, in prison. And I was also deprived of like the desensitizing influence of pornography all those years that like the perversion, right? The perversion was like overwhelming for me. Like I'm not used to watching perversion anymore. What's you've sinned. What's wrong with you? You know? Like I understand, I understand theft. Like I get it. I'm mean, approve of it obviously, but I get on some level, I understand it. You want something, you take it, whatever. Drugs make perfect sense to me. Men killing other men, you know, might be described as a miracle. We don't see more of that. But like destroying a woman, I've always thought is like a uniquely wicked thing. Right? Not only because they're like the weaker sex. Like I consider it a terrible thing for women to destroy other women. It's not it's not just a power disparity. It's like it's because of it's not just like a it's not chivalry necessarily. It's or my desire to possess them. It's like but because they are. They like women are even women who are not that beautiful or whatever, but like they're beautiful and precious creatures such that their frailty is considered a positive like feature of their existence, contrary to men, you know, and who might that's a form of death. Right. People confuse survival of the fittest by saying, you know, only the strong survive. But women remind us of the error in this you know, thought process. That the strength and the capacity for destruction that stains the soul of every man, it would like deprive a woman of this pleasantness that makes them such a joy to be around, right? Like the gentleness that makes them so ideal for nurturing children. This like the disarming, for want of a better term, like like this aura, this force field that hangs around them, you know. She wields a power that, like, she can she can walk up to, like, the most dangerous of men and, and do so little as, like, brush her fingernails against his forearm, right? And she just makes of him a request and, you know, as though hypnotized, he may be powerful, powerless to resist her. And I don't know if that's, like, beauty so much as it is magic or whatever, but I have only my, you know, eyes and ears to observe it. And I'm at the mercy of what remain of my senses in her presence. So, you know, I'm working with what I got. But whatever it is, like God or no God, like like it is a terrible sin to wreck that thing. You know, whether you wreck it for everybody else by like smashing it with a hammer or whether you wreck it for yourself by destroying your mind with pornography. It's not it's not entirely different categories of action. Because like if you're unable to appreciate the thing, then like you're not you're not just deprived of the thing yourself. Okay, like in your blindness, you're dangerous. You're like a drunk driver on the highway, right? And and you're surely more dangerous if you take an interest in politics while so impaired, you know. And I mean, like I, I suppose a lot of what I've done here, it's like it's sort of like the reflections of an artist in a lot of sense, but I think that there's you know politically useful information in there. It's kind of a difficult thing to conclude. It's not a story that ends. It's not a mathematical equation. I don't have any like instructions for you to follow other than perhaps to like take inventory from time to time. The, 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 the cursed things that plague modernity are, I think, less in what they actually destroy than in what they deprive us of the capacity to appreciate. You know? And if we do not appreciate them, then we will be the ones who wreck them. And, you know, I think that there's a lot of that going on. And I don't think that the dissident right is at all, like, immune to it. And I did, like, I, I do think I can sort of conclude this thing, and then we'll get, I'll get back to you guys consequently. 
I talked a little bit earlier about Matt Hale and like the World Church of the Creator. And as you know, like I had my disagreements with him about this, but I found one thing that Mr. Hale told me about was very uh was a very sab- savvy observation. It was what he said about the name of the World Church of the Creator. Like in the World Church of the Creator, there's no God. He's not talking about the Creator like like Christians do. He's talking about you, as a matter of fact, like white people, white men, specifically white white people are the creators. You are the creator, white man. And if you look around and once in a while, you know, like that's kind of like just difficult to disagree with, right? You deign that your God commanded you to control nature and you obeyed. You mastered wood and stone and bronze and iron. You built castles, tamed horses, and conquered the land. You built ships. You conquered the waves. You built weapons and armies and conquered the savages. And though your enemies today describe this as a rampage of wanton destruction, there are wheels, highways, and hospitals in Africa, which offer no small dispute of this. You built this world, and if it falls apart, that will be your fault. You are guiltless in its creation. You are credited with this. You are not a destructive force. You are a creative one. And if you have committed any crime in history, it is that you have believed the destructive lies of your enemies and abdicated the responsibilities that your ancestors incurred with their creations. Your creations are not self-perpetuating works of God. Their creations are not They are works of your hands and your mind. And to the extent it may be said, God acts on earth. He does so through you. So go forth and build something beautiful, my fellow creators.